Today we're going to seek to stare into the blazing sun of the sovereignty of God in human salvation. And if like this friend, you would like to be saved today, in all sincerity, I have excellent news. Our text shows that without consulting us, God is happy to take the initiative not only to save, but to let us know that the saving that He does is owing 100% to the life-giving words of His Son, to the immediate work of the Holy Spirit, and preliminarily to the wooing power of God the Father to draw people to His Son. Far from making us therefore passive, salvation's all of God, we therefore do nothing, far from making us passive, the truth that salvation belongs to the Lord, to use the words of the psalmist, ought to provoke desperation among lost people. I don't know if you've ever felt desperate. For God not just to bless you or get you out of a mess, but to save you from the greatest possible problem that you have, which is the same that everyone who's ever been born has, that is you are born fundamentally separated from God. Though created in His image, designed for His glory, made to enjoy Him forever, None are born in a condition where they not only do that, but are even capable of doing that apart from the saving intervention of God. And so instead of saying, because God is sovereign in salvation, salvation belongs to the Lord, it's 100% a work of God, therefore we should be passive and do nothing, I want to show today that we should rather be desperate. If you are not saved, I would not be surprised if this message caused some of you to hit your face in the middle of this gathering and to cry out to God in Christ to have mercy on your soul. And for those who are in Christ, this truth should also have an effect on us, also not causing us to be passive, but rather clinging to Christ by faith. The sermon text requires so much of our attention, let's just get right to it. John chapter 6, verses 59 through 71. It's the end of the sixth chapter of John's Gospel. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Hear the words of the living God. John 6 beginning in verse 59. These things Jesus said in the synagogue as He taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of His disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that His disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit 
and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal Pardon me, you have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's ask God again for help before we march through this deep, deep text. Father, we ask that you would dispatch the Holy Spirit who Jesus speaks of in this passage as the one who gives life. Would you cause us by His illuminating power to see what this passage says, to rightly understand it, but please, O oh God, do not let anybody stop there. We ask that the Spirit would also apply this passage to our lives in a way that will glorify you as we yield to the Lord Jesus as our all-satisfying Savior. Save Sinners, please, O oh God, and sanctify your people as we embrace Christ by faith. We ask this for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Our sermon theme is our sovereign Savior. The passage has, as I see it, two parts, verses 59 to 65, verses 66 to 71, we'll take it in that order with a few headings beneath each. But the first part, 59 to 65, accents the reality that salvation belongs to the Lord. And the second part accents that any defection from Jesus, anybody not liking what he says, anybody leaving him, anybody turning their back on him, does not in the least adjust his declaration. So salvation belongs to the Lord, and defecting from Jesus is not going to make him apologize for the truth that he proclaims. First, salvation belongs to the Lord, verses 59 to 65. You can see that a comment comes in verse 60 from those who are called his disciples. In fact, many of them. Verse 60 says, many of his disciples. Say in verse 60, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Well, what statement is difficult? This is a difficult statement. What's in reference, if you go really taking the whole chapter, it's in reference to the sovereignty of God in human salvation. It's summarized for us in multiple places, like verse 44, where Jesus says unequivocally, nobody, amen, <laughs> nobody 
will ever come to Jesus unless God the Father reaches His almighty hand out of heaven down into your little heart and pulls you to Christ. If that doesn't happen, you cannot come to Him for salvation. That's verse 44. He also, this is a difficult statement, who can listen to it, is also summarized in places like verse 52, which actually teach the same truth. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, verse 52, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? He's teaching some kind of cannibalism for redemption. As we heard in last week's sermon, our brother Trey, verses 53 to 58, can be summarized by verse 53. So then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourself. And if you just go back to verses 35 and 40, you'll find that eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Jesus correspond to not cannibalism, but to use Jesus' words, beholding and believing. Eating and drinking are synonyms for Jesus to embracing and trusting Jesus. If you don't do that, I'll just quote Jesus, you have no life in yourself. This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? That's verse 60. Just like chapter 6 opens with Jesus feeding 5,000 men, probably 25, 30,000 people, and all of them from one boy's basket of lunch got, verse 11, as much as they wanted. Totally satisfied. Or, verse 12, they were all filled. The picture we see of Jesus in this whole chapter is that because He is, verse 35, the bread of life, He therefore fully, indeed, eternally satisfies all who come to Him by faith. He is the bread of life. So verse 35 is true. If you come to Him, you will not hunger. If you believe in Him, you will not thirst. Verse 40, this is the will of God the Father, that everyone who beholds the Lord Jesus, everyone who believes in Him, will have eternal life, and Jesus will raise Him up on the last day. So the difficult saying, verse 60, in the minds of the disciples, was that Jesus was calling men and women, boys and girls, to believe in Him for eternal life. That is to digest Him by faith as the sole provider for favor with God for time and eternity. So friends, let's apply this right out of the gate. The same thing applies to me, and it applies to you. If you will not embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, you will not, you will not only never be satisfied in this life, that is true, you're always going to look for the next thing to try to fill that deep spot in your soul. If you will not come to Jesus by faith, embrace Him and His gospel accomplishments, having died in your place, risen again to prove that He can reconcile you to God forever, if you will not embrace Him by faith, you will never be satisfied in this lifetime. But you will also not have eternal life. This, verse 60, is a difficult 
statement. But notice in verse 61 that Jesus is now conscious of their faithless grumbling. He's aware, whether they say it aloud or not, we don't know, but he's fully aware that they don't like what he's saying. So what does he do? Does he backpedal? Does he soften the blow? No, he doubles down. And he clarifies the point even more strongly. Instead of walking back and softening the blow, he actually drives the dagger of truth even deeper. In re-emphasizing the sovereignty of God and salvation, Jesus emphasizes two dilemmas in the first part of the passage, which will serve as our headings under point number one. He brings out two problems. Problem number one, the ascension of Jesus. I'll go ahead and give you problem number two, the sovereignty of God. So, the reason the ascension of Jesus is a dilemma is, let's let him say it. Verse 61, Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Buckle your seatbelt. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? If you just track the theme of the ascension of Jesus, the raising up, the elevating of Jesus in the Gospel of John, you will find that the ascension of Jesus is tied to his cross and his resurrection, not only his movement from earth to heaven, where he had existed from eternity. The ascension of Jesus is spoken of by John throughout his Gospel as him returning to his eternal glory through the pathway of his death and resurrection. So if you think it's hard, a hard pill to swallow that if you don't believe in Jesus, you will not have eternal life, how are you going to handle the fact that he's going to save from his eternal throne having passed there through death and resurrection? Are you willing to embrace a humiliated and dying Savior? D.A. Carson says if his disciples find Jesus' claims, his authority and even his language offensive, what will they think when they see Jesus on the cross? His way, Carson says, of ascending to the place where he was before is his death. That is the supreme scandal. However offensive the linguistic expression, eat my flesh and drink my blood may be, how much more offensive is the crucifixion of an alleged Messiah? The fundamental difference between Christianity and every other so-called religion is that all those deities demand that you do something for them. And Christianity declares that God did for you what you could never have done for yourself. John was unabashed about Jesus' eternality. The reason he's going to ascend to where he was before is because he has always been, John 1, the eternal Logos, the Word of God, who was with God. He has always existed in eternal glory as he declared to the Jews in John chapter 8, before Abraham was born, I am. As Jesus prays in John 17, he existed before the world was with God the Father, verse 5, in glory. He's going to ascend. 
this is a dilemma for those who will not embrace Him by faith because having been dead, crucified, and risen, then ascended back to His eternal glory with the Father to sit on heaven's throne means He's going to be the one with whom every person must do, to quote Hebrews chapter 4, by whom everyone will be judged. So the reason verse 60, 61, 62 creates a greater problem is the people didn't like His words, but He's actually the very one from His ascended heavenly throne, having risen from the dead, and proven that He is the one Lord of all, He's the very one who's going to judge those who do not believe. Verse 62, He ascended to His heavenly throne from whence He had previously descended. Do you see that in verse 58? He descended from heaven, verse 58, to give eternal life. They didn't like that. We, we know your mom and dad. He's in Capernaum, which is in Galilee, which is near the place where Nazareth was, where he grew up. These are his people. They knew his mom. They knew his dad. They knew his siblings. How, how can he say he descended from heaven? That gave them a problem in verse 58, and it gives them a greater problem in verse 62, when he ascends back as the judge of all. So we live in a, in a, in a day of... Uh, hypersensitivity, everybody's on a hair trigger it seems for cultural outrage, let somebody say something that somebody doesn't like and it's time to whip out the megaphone and shout to the universe how, how wrong they are. People so easily offended today. It seems like there's an ever-growing army of sensitivity, police who are always on the prowl looking for the next person to cancel. So let me help you. If you're not a Christian, I'll give you something to be offended at. The very God who made you, the one who sustains you right now, the, the same one who, who lovingly lived a life of entire obedience in your place, who then was rewarded for a life of total impeccable perfection, always honoring God, keeping the law, fulfilling all righteousness. He was rewarded by people just like you with death on a cross, which God had designed from times and eternity past in order for Him, that perfect life, to die on a cross as a substitute to pay for your sins and to rise again from the dead to justify you before God so that you could have His righteousness applied to you. This is the one who ascended to the Father's right hand, where He now sits on heaven's throne and will be the one before whom you stand as your final judge. Paul said in Acts that God the Father has appointed that every person be judged through a man having furnished proof that He will be every person's judge, to quote Paul, by raising Him from the dead. So if you reject Him, Jesus wants you to know that you have a huge problem, dilemma number one, he's ascended to heaven's throne. But dilemma number two, there's another problem. Verses 63 to 65, God is sovereign. Even in your rejection. 
there are three emphases that Jesus makes concerning the sovereignty of God in salvation. It says in verse 63, the Spirit gives life. Also that the words of Christ are life. In verses 64 and 65, that the Father grants the ability for people to come to Jesus, and if He doesn't grant, you can't come. Let's read it again, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life, the the flesh profits nothing. The words that I've spoken to you are Spirit and life. So number one, the Spirit gives life. So those who are listening to Jesus would have been acquainted with the Old Testament pattern that life-giving is the work of the Spirit. It's powerfully illustrated all over the place in the Old Testament. One passage where it shines especially would be Ezekiel 37, where the prophet Ezekiel has his famous vision of the valley of dry bones. And we read at the end of that account, listen to verses 9 and 10 of Ezekiel 37. Then the Lord said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. It's passages like this that Jesus has in mind when he says at the beginning of verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. He is undoubtedly saying to this audience, this crowd, you're dead. You're a valley of dry bones. And the Spirit of God sovereignly gives life. Not only does the Spirit give life, but Jesus also accents in God's sovereignty that His own words give life. And this is a radically important phrase at the end of verse 63. The words that I have spoken to you, Jesus said, are spirit and life. So now he's drawing a distinction between passages like Ezekiel and other Old Testament accounts. And the distinction is this. Jesus, unlike Ezekiel, does not need to prophesy for the Spirit to come and bring life because Jesus' words are life. He's equating himself with God and the life giver. What Jesus says about his own words is so parallel to places like Jeremiah, where the prophet Jeremiah said, your words were found and I ate them, and they became for me a joy and a delight to my heart, for I've been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Your words gave me life. To use Carson one more time, he says about this phrase, Jeremiah's assessment of God's words is the same as Jesus' assessment of His own words. One cannot feed on Christ without feeding on Christ's words for truly believing Jesus cannot be separated from truly believing his words you just go back to John chapter 5 and Jesus says oh you're so devoted to the Bible because you think that in those pages you have eternal life but these bear witness of me but you are unwilling to come to me to quote Jesus so that you may have life His words give life. He's equating himself with God. Carson concludes, human beings live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8, Matthew 4. The identical claim is now made for the words of Jesus because he is the word incarnate. So the point Jesus is making, verse 63, about his words giving life is this. If you will take the words of Jesus 
embrace by faith who He says He is and what He says He came to accomplish in His death and resurrection, you will live forever. The Spirit will give you life in Him. But let me be clear, if you will not, then verse 63 tells you the biggest dilemma. You are unprofitable flesh. Do you see it? Verse 63, the Spirit gives life. The flesh, that's you and your ability, apart from the supernatural intervention of God, the flesh profits nothing. If you will not have Jesus as your all-satisfying Savior, then regardless of how much you are profited by your flesh in this lifetime, at the end of the day, you have nothing. Jesus says in another place, we're soon to encounter it in our small group study, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So the offense taken by the people, it's a hard statement, who can listen to it, does not deter Jesus from reiterating the point of the sovereignty of God in salvation. The Spirit gives life. I'm God, so my words give life. I don't have to be like Ezekiel and ask the Spirit to come. I'm telling you the words that will give you life. The Spirit of God, the Son of God, and then number three, the Father. This is verse 64 and 65. It is a very challenging passage. God the Father alone grants carnal, to use his word, flesh, sinners to come to Jesus for salvation. Do you see it in verse 64? But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Dear friends, we're no longer waiting in anything that resembles the shallow end of the biblical swimming pool. We are in Mariana's Trench at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean in the mysterious work of God in His providence, His sovereignty in the salvation of sinners. But God hasn't left us completely ignorant, though we do not fully know. Jesus does not demonstrate a confusion about human unbelief. Why won't they just believe? He's not confused. He doesn't demonstrate a confusion. Rather, He asserts the reason. Verse 65. It's a reiteration of verse 44. No one can come to Me unless it has been granted Him by the Father. Does He mean that? Do you have ears to hear this? Of course He means it. It could not have been more powerfully and personally applied to the people to whom He was speaking in this context. Look at verse 44. His eyes are open. Their eyes are open. This is a personal interaction. There are some of you who do not believe. Do you feel that? He's telling them to their face, I know your heart. I know that the Spirit of God has not regenerated you. I know that my life-giving words have not penetrated your stone-hard heart and your rebellion against God. And I know that my Father hasn't drawn you to me. Some of you 
For Jesus knew from the beginning, verse 64, who they were, they, 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 plural, who they were, and who it was, singular, who would betray Him. Not only did Jesus know that some within earshot of His voice did not believe, He also knew before He picked Judas to be His follower and to be among the entourage of His disciples and to hear His glorious teaching for three and a half years and to see His miracles, He knew that that one would never believe and why He would not. He's not confused. He's declaring the reason. Verse 64 declares the reality of Jesus' awareness of the lack of true faith. There are some of you who do not believe. He knows that. He sees what we cannot. He knows the hearts of every person. And He knows your heart as well. So if you want to go with Jesus into the depths of the trench of the sovereignty of God, the deep ocean of God's godness in redemption, we don't know everything, but He has revealed some things. And I just want to say with humility, this is the kind of passage that should evoke fear and trembling, trepidation, dread. This should be an Isaiah 66-2 moment. God looks to those who tremble at His Word. I want to say with fear and trembling, not highbrow, not some kind of theological prowess, no pride, so help me God. You're going to have to do all sorts of interpretive gymnastics to conclude that verses 63 to 65 mean anything other than what I'm about to summarize, so help me God, in the next few moments. The sovereign Savior knew that His Father would not draw some among His closest entourage. Disciples in this passage is not only the twelve, though in just a moment He's going to talk to them explicitly. Apparently there was a larger group that also followed Jesus who were designated as disciples. Jesus knew that His Father would not draw some in His closest entourage to Him for true salvation. And He also knew from the beginning who was not going to believe. Verse 64 means that Jesus did not call at least one of the twelve and many of the surrounding entourage hoping that they would be saved. Rather, He knew who would not be. Verse 64 means that Jesus called disciples to Himself knowing who would and who would not believe. Carson, one sentence, one more time. The pattern of unbelief came as no surprise to Jesus. So if you're listening to me carefully, and oh how I pray that you are, because what I'm about to say can be sorely, sorely, sorely misunderstood. It has definitely been militarized, and it has definitely been militarized, weaponized against genuine believers. So I pray that you're listening carefully. If you know yourself not to be a Christian, 
if you have not fled to Jesus from the wrath to come, you have two options, as far as I can tell, with what to do with what I'm now saying to you from these verses. Option one, you can throw up your hands as a fatalist. That we're all just robotic. That we're machines. That we have no will. The sovereignty of God means no human effort. And you throw up your hands and you're a fatalist. Well, if God's elected and God chooses and God draws and the Spirit gives life and it's only the words of Jesus and some in his entourage never even believed and he knew from the beginning who they were and I don't believe, then therefore there's no hope for me. Option one. Oh, how I have prayed against that. I got on my knees this morning and prayed that in this moment, nobody would come to that conclusion. Option two, you get desperate. Desperate. The kind of desperation that manifests itself in fear and trembling, what Augustine meant, if you are not drawn to Jesus by the Father now, Pray, oh pray, that you may be. Get on your face, cry out for mercy. Your flesh cannot profit you in one iota in respect to eternal life. You have nothing with which you may commend yourself to God. Tomorrow is not going to make anything better than today. You are right now, according to God's description, and I love you enough to tell you, you are a monster of iniquity who has spurned God's glorious Son for your entire lifetime up to this point. Every breath you've drawn, you've drawn in rebellion against the God who made you and sustained you. And if that doesn't make you desperate to beg God for a work of undeserved mercy, and might I add, at great cost to Himself, then I don't know what would make you desperate. If you won't tremble for your soul, there's a lot of people here who will cry for you, but we can't save you. So you can be a fatalist or you can get desperate. And I don't see any options between that. Hebrews 4 says it so plainly. Therefore let us fear. That's what I'm talking about when I say desperate. Let us fear. Let us tremble. Let us have dread in the bottom of our soul. If, Hebrews 4, 1 and 2, while a promise remains of entering God's rest, that's salvation, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. So if anybody's going to come short of salvation, this verse says we should do something. Fear. For indeed, Hebrews 1, uh, 4, 1 and 2, for indeed we have had good news. That's the word gospel. We have had good news preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them. Why? Because it was not united by faith in those who heard. The writer of Hebrews is saying, lots of people hear the gospel. And some people unite that hearing with faith. And other people, with a rock-hard, stone heart, have that word bounce off them and they could care less. Now I want to say a word to those who have a tender conscience, who are true believers, who may be sitting there thinking, what if God's not drawing me? What if the Spirit hadn't given me life? What if the words of Jesus haven't truly penetrated my soul and I've really rested in Him by faith in His gospel labors? I want to give a word to those who have a tender conscience and you fear that you may be a Judas. 
around Jesus a lot, see a lot of his miracles, hear a lot of his teaching, but at the end of the day, son of perdition, reprobate, perish in hell. Some of you have feared that you've committed what you know the Bible calls the unpardonable sin, that you're a reprobate, there's no hope for you. You can't find assurance, you've sought for it 10,000 times. I want to talk to you for just a moment if you're one of those. I want uh, to lean on the help of a, a, a true scholar. Francis Commentary, Gospel of Mark, says, it may be safely asserted that the vast majority of pastoral cases involving those who fear that they may have committed or might commit the unforgivable sin have little or nothing to do with what that passage is saying or talking about. The unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin, is a warning to those who adopt a position of deliberate rejection and antagonism, not an attempt to frighten those who have a tender conscience. Can I just bring that down to uh, put the cookies on the bottom shelf? If you're worried that you've committed the unforgivable sin, you almost certainly have not. It's the people who don't care. It's not the people with the tender conscience who fear that they might made the effect on Jesus to whom Jesus is speaking in this passage. It's the people who, in verse 66, turn their back and walk away. In God's providence, He determined that one of Jesus' closest friends would raise up his heel against the Savior, that is Judas, and would become his betrayer. God designed it that way. Long before Judas was ever born, the prophet Zechariah prophesied that not only would Judas betray the Lord Jesus, but also that he would do it for a particular, a certain sum of money, 30 shekels of silver, which Exodus 21 tells us was the price that somebody would pay for a slave. That's what Judas thought of Jesus' value. We're also told in the Old Testament not only that Judas would betray Jesus, that he'd do it for a certain sum of money, but that he would also later feel remorse about that and would take that bag of silver coins and throw it back into the temple treasury in front of the Sanhedrin and that he would tell them that they should take the money back. And we're also told in the Old Testament that they would spurn that return of the money because it was given as a price of blood for Jesus. And so they would use it to buy a certain piece of property, Hakeldama, the potter's field. The Old Testament prophesied in meticulous detail the reprobation of Judas. So here's what I'm saying. God, God, God determined long before Judas was ever born, that he would be the one who had the ignominious fate of being the Lord's betrayer. Maybe the reason Jesus spent the whole night in prayer before he selected the twelve apostles, it's one of the occasions where Jesus has a sleepless night, next day he chooses his apostles. Maybe it was because he was agonizing over Zechariah chapter 11. And he knew that to bring Judas into the mix was to embrace the fate for which he originally came to earth. To invite Judas to be among the twelve meant that he was proactively stalking the cross. 
the evening before Jesus was crucified, he underlined this note of God's absolute sovereignty and salvation for all whom the Father would give to him except Judas Iscariot. Jesus prayed in John 17. This is the evening before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane where he sweats drops of blood in prayer. But in John 17, in his high priestly prayer, he says, Father, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished except the son of perdition. Why? Why did Judas perish? Quote, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. This is a tough pill to swallow. It's a hard saying. Who can listen to it? I'll tell you who. People who feel like there's no reason God should have saved them. Christians who say, I should have been the last person the Father drew to His Son. I should have been the last person that the Spirit invaded and took out a heart of stone and gave a heart of flesh. Those people listen to Jesus talk about God's sovereignty and salvation, and they don't boast and puff up and poke their chest out and look down on other people who aren't saved and say, yeah, of course God saved me. I can understand why he didn't save him or her. And God got lucky to get somebody like me on his team. They don't have that spirit in them. They are humbled at the foot of the cross, and they realize there's no reason other than the absolute sovereignty of God that they were drawn to Christ in the first place. And for any who will not come to Jesus, I want to tell you what Jesus says about them. He says it about Judas, but it applies to everyone who will not come to Christ. I'm going to quote Jesus. Mark 14, 21. It would have been better for you if you had never been born. The ascension of Jesus is a huge dilemma for unbelievers because He's going to judge you all and He's going to judge me too. And the sovereignty of God in salvation is another huge dilemma. The passage closes, verses 66 to 71, with defections from Jesus, with confessions from Peter on behalf of the apostles, and with Jesus reiterating his declaration of God's sovereignty. Defections from Jesus do not adjust his declarations. That's verse 66 to 71. Notice in verse 66, as a result of Jesus' teaching. Do you see this phrase? Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Now the verse numbers and chapters are not original to the Bible. Mark didn't put chapter 6 verse 1, chapter 6 verse 2. That's been later added for our reference. And 666 is an easy reference to remember because many people turn their back on Jesus. Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away also, do you? The sobering truth that I want to underline from verses 66 and 67 is that Jesus will let you leave. If you're not going to have Him, if you're not going to have Him and all that God is for you in Him, He will let you leave. I pray that plenty of people who do not yet know Christ will find our services the place that they would most want to be until you believe. You're welcome here. You're welcome to continue to come here. The dividing line is not between church attendance and non-attendance. It's not leaving us. It's, it, it's leaving Him. But mark it down. 
Jesus has nothing else to offer but Himself. And being in allegiance to Jesus, we're offering nothing else either. Jesus is the sum total of saving knowledge and without faith in Him, all men will perish. If you will not have Christ, Christ will let you walk. But I want you to notice, Jesus doesn't dare them to leave. But neither does He cajole them to stay. Do you see in verse 66, He doesn't say, no, 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 wait a minute, come come, come back. He'll let you leave. The second part, of defections from Jesus not adjusting His declaration is that there are some who cannot walk away. Why do some leave and some stay? Why do some persevere in the faith? Because by God's doing, they have seen in Jesus the source of eternal life because, deeper root, they have come to see that He is God. You see that in verse 68 and 69? Jesus says to His 12, verse 67, you don't want to go away also, do you? He was giving the 12 an opportunity to walk. And Peter on behalf of the 12 says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that You are the Holy One of God. There's a twofold description of Jesus given by Peter in these verses. Verse 68, you have the words of eternal life. Verse 69, you're the Holy Holy One of God. We've dealt with Jesus' life-giving words. Just focus for a moment on that phrase, you are the Holy One of God. This is, from Peter's lips, to liken Jesus to the God of the patriarchs and the God of the Old Testament uh, prophets. It is to, in effect, refer to Jesus as Yahweh. In the Old Testament, and I want you to hear the drumbeat, Sometimes I think this kind of statement I'm about to make becomes white noise to everybody, but I want you to hear the metronome. Isaiah 40.25, 43.15, Habakkuk 1.12, Habakkuk 3.3, Isaiah 57.15, I am the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. Not only that phrase, the Holy One of God, but the Holy One of Israel. Everybody would have understood that Peter was saying that Jesus is Psalm 71.22, Isaiah 12.6, Isaiah 30.12, Isaiah 41.20, Isaiah 43.4, Isaiah 43.14, and I could go on and on and on. Peter is saying, you are the God of the Old Testament. We have come to believe. And we have come to know you are Him. Where else can we go? You have the words of life. So while, number one, Jesus will let you leave, I want to say, as clearly as I know how, the regenerate heart cannot leave. It's a double negative, and we use bad grammar here a lot, and sometimes on purpose. You cannot not believe if you have seen Jesus for who He is. You simply can't unsee what you've seen if you have seen Him to be who He declares Himself to be and to have done what He has declared Himself to have done in His death and resurrection. So the passage ends, and I close, verse 70 and 71. Judas deceived everybody except for one person. Judas deceived everybody except for Jesus. 
Do you see in verses 70 and 71, did I myself not choose you, Jesus responded? I chose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is written, of course, after the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven. And John is looking back and explaining the situation to us in this gospel. But at the time the twelve were following Jesus and Peter was making his confession, we have come to know and to believe that you are the Holy One of God in that moment and Judas is standing around. The other eleven disciples thought really highly of Judas. Jesus was never deceived. But everybody around Judas was deceived. The disciples had selected him to carry the money belt, given him that place of honor among the twelve, but Jesus knew from the beginning. When a lady broke her vial of anointing oil and poured it over Jesus' head, and Judas responds, this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. We're told in the next verse, Jesus knowing this said to them, why do you cause trouble for this woman? For she has done a good deed to me. You see, Jesus knew from the beginning. The disciples, when they're having the Last Supper with the Lord Jesus, and He's explaining to them the new covenant in His blood. And in that meal conversation, Jesus predicted that one of the twelve would betray Him, and the twelve were taken aback. And we're told Satan entered Judas's heart. Jesus knew from the beginning. In our text, John 6, 70, even before Jesus chose Judas, He knew that one of them was diabolical. It's an adjective. You are a devil. You are devilish. You're an accuser. It doesn't mean that Judas became the devil incarnate, but it means that he had conspired to be in such league with Satan that to differentiate the work of Satan from the work of Judas, where one stopped and the other started, was impossible to discern. He had sold his soul to the devil. And Jesus knew that from the beginning. Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So what we've seen today is this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The words of Jesus give life because He's God. The Holy Spirit, not the flesh, profits people by uniting them to Christ. The Father alone draws people to Jesus. All three persons of the Trinity are conspiring together to reveal to you right now that the life and the labors of the Lord Jesus his life of impeccable obedience, what you should have lived before God. His death of substitutionary sacrifice, the way you should have died before God. His victorious resurrection, declaring that He is a sufficient Savior for anybody who will run to Him and rest in Him by faith. God is declaring to you now, that is your only hope for reconciliation with God. He is the only bread, to use chapter 6, that will satisfy your soul for time and for eternity. And Jesus is on a mission, just like He was in John 6. He is still the one to whom the Father is drawing people for eternal life. So here's what I wonder as I close. We can't see it, but I wonder if God the Father is reaching His mighty hand down out of heaven into one of your hearts right now and pulling you to Jesus.
and drawing you to Christ. I wonder if the Holy Spirit is excavating your heart of stone and giving to you a heart of flesh that pulsates for the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if the words of Jesus are penetrating your dead soul and causing you to be born again to a living hope or born according to the Word of God, as James says. He's seeking some out in every generation, in every location. And there's no reason that you can't come to Him now. The hymn writer puts it so well, Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior. He sought me and He bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him. And all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath His cleansing blood. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word, even the sobering, difficult, humbling truth of Your sovereignty and human salvation. Instead of warring against You, we want to desperately throw ourselves before You. For those who have been born again, who have been regenerated, on whom, John 3, the Spirit has moved and caused us to know eternal life in the Lord Jesus, we humble ourselves and say, thank you, God, for your mercy. And we ask that you would employ us in your service to tell others about the bread of life. And for those who have never come to him, oh, God, we ask that you would draw to Jesus for salvation those who are in our hearing our kindred, our family members, our loved ones, the people for whom we're burdened. And Lord, we have to believe that just as you are sovereign in human salvation, you are also providentially arranging our lives so that we would have relationships with people for whom we pray precisely because you are hunting them down. You are seeking them in your mercy. You sought us. You bought us with your redeeming blood. Oh God, Use us to tell the good news to our loved ones and those around us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.